Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Heavy smoke blanketing cities across the Midwest and the East Coast. Officials are warning of unhealthy air from the Canadian wildfires. The wreckage of the Titan submersible seen for the first time since the catastrophic implosion. The debris was brought back to port today. The former Marine who choked a man to death on the subway appears in court. We hear from attorneys on both sides of the case. President Biden dismisses questions about his son Hunter's threatening text message to a Chinese businessman. Meanwhile, House Republicans release a second Hunter text message. Former President Trump is countersuing the woman who claimed he assaulted her in a department store. His crying defamation over her claims of rape after a jury ruled it out. The Wagner mutiny in Russia has come to a close. What is Washington saying about the incident? And over in Ukraine, multiple deaths as a Russian missile strikes a restaurant. We'll bring you the latest. Smoke from Canadian wildfires is drifting into the U.S. again. Over 120 million people from the Midwest to the East Coast are under air quality alerts today. Officials are calling on the public to take safety precautions as Canadian wildfire smoke swept across parts of the U.S. on Wednesday. The Midwest is most heavily impacted. A code red alert warning of unhealthy air quality was issued for much of the Midwest and Ohio Valley including Chicago, Milwaukee, Indianapolis, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh. This is bad. Like, you can smell it bad. I mean, I run 100 miles a week, so this is going to be dangerous today. The National Weather Service issued an air quality alert in 15 states, covering over 120 million people. This map on the EPA's AirNow website shows the air quality index on Wednesday, with the red areas in the unhealthy zone and purple areas in very unhealthy. Chicago and Detroit had the worst air quality in the world Tuesday night. Residents are advised to stay indoors with their air conditioning running and in some areas wear N95 masks if they have to be outside. Canada is seeing its worst fire season on record. The Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Centre says more than 250 blazes are burning out of control across the country. The wildfires will continue to send worsening smoky air across the U.S. and Canada in the coming days after heavy rains failed to fall. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. The wreckage of the Titan submersible has been salvaged from the ocean floor. The Titan's mothership brought the wreckage back to port in Canada today. The Canadian-flagged Horizon Arctic is back in port in St. John's, Newfoundland, with debris from the destroyed vessel. It's the first time the wreckage was seen since the catastrophic implosion. Some of the debris fragments and pieces showed signs of significant damage. The owners of the remotely operated vehicle, or ROV, that searched the ocean floor said they have successfully completed offshore operations. The Titan imploded about 13,000 feet below the surface of the ocean near the wreckage of the Titanic, killing all five on board. Both Canadian and U.S. authorities are conducting investigations into the implosion. The former Marine who choked a man to death on the subway appeared in court today. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest updates on this highly controversial case. A quick warning that some of the following footage may be disturbing for some viewers. 
On Wednesday, former Marine Daniel Penny pleaded not guilty to the charges of second-degree manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide. Penny is charged in the death of a homeless man he put in a chokehold on the New York City subway in May. He faces up to 19 years in prison if convicted on both counts. According to Penny and witnesses on the train, Jordan Neely had been threatening subway riders. Witnesses also said Neely, who had mental illness, did not physically threaten anyone or attack anyone. Penny then put Neely in a chokehold until he stopped breathing, and protests erupted after Penny was not immediately arrested. The former Marine was arrested about a week after the incident and has been out on a $100,000 bond. Penny's defense attorney commented after Wednesday's arraignment. Say that all the evidence that we've seen so far and all the evidence we expect to see shows that, he, uh, that, that Danny acted reasonably under very difficult circumstances in a confined environment that none of us would ever want to find ourselves in. A legal defense fund was set up for Penny and has raised almost $3 million. And the attorney for Neely's family had this to say about it. Daniel Penny killed the man. He took a life. And for everyone who thought donating $3 million would somehow make this go away or buy his pass, it's not going to happen. It didn't work. You can ask for a refund. We're here. Help is here. So from now on, when justice happens, don't be surprised and don't be shocked. And Penny's other defense attorney explained the benefits of having a Manhattan jury. So it is a very positive thing that we're able to go to the people here in Manhattan and ask them to render a verdict on this case because they understand what it's like to be in the situation that Danny was in, at least as to the physical confinement of the area. So we talked to some people in Manhattan to see how they feel about the incident on the subway. Yeah, he might have been terrorizing him, doing whatever he was doing. I don't know what he did. But whatever he did, you ain't have to choke him out like that. You could have let him go after he was already unconscious. Yeah, no, even if you didn't want someone bothering you, like there's no reason to do that, period. I think that we need to leverage our police officers who are great and I respect them very much to be better partners for us and not try to take vigilante justice into our own hands. This case continues to draw attention and raise important discussions about self-defense and the duty to protect one another. Penny's next appearance in court will be for a pretrial hearing on October 25th. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. President Biden today strongly denied having any involvement in his son's foreign business dealings. This comes as a second Hunter Biden text message was released by House Republicans. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has the details. Were you sitting there? Were you involved? Were you involved? Were you? No. President Biden on Wednesday responded with a resounding no to reporters questioning him about a text message his son Hunter allegedly sent to a Chinese businessman. In the message, Hunter said, I am sitting here with my father, and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. News of the message came after the House Ways and Means Committee last week released IRS whistleblower testimony. The whistleblower, Gary Shapley, had testified that Hunter received preferential treatment during a Justice Department investigation, especially when it got close to the 2020 presidential election. Between April and June of 2020, we, uh, we drafted an affidavit to execute search warrant in a couple different locations. 
And the prosecutors at the time stated that probable cause had been achieved. But as we, we moved closer to the election, um, it just seemed like they kept putting it on the back burner and they eventually didn't allow us to do that search warrant. Even though He said that the Delaware U.S. attorney, David Weiss, who was leading the investigation, told him in a meeting that he was not calling the shots. I even had him repeat that because I knew how important that fact was and I wanted to make sure I understood it. Weiss stated in a June 7 letter to the House Judiciary Committee that he had complete authority in the investigation. The committee has requested an interview with Weiss to clarify his claim. Shapley told CBS they were not allowed to follow leads connected to President Biden. The House Oversight Committee is continuing its investigation. But they say they don't have enough evidence to formally charge Biden. We need tapes, we need bank records, we need everything because we need to show overwhelming evidence of corruption. On Tuesday, the committee released a second text message written by Hunter, dated August 3, 2017. The exchange is between Hunter and an associate of Chinese energy company, CEFC. In it, Hunter demanded $10 million to further the interest in a joint venture. He said the Bidens are the best I know at doing exactly what the chairman wants from this partnership. A September 2020 Senate report showed that on August 8, 2017, CEFC wired nearly $5 million to the bank account for Hudson West III, a firm that Hunter Biden opened with Chinese associates. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is promoting Bidenomics. That's what they're calling President Biden's economic agenda. They say it's focused on the middle class, but some Republicans aren't convinced. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Hey, good evening, Tiv. In a speech in Chicago today, President Biden condemned what he called trickle-down economics while selling his own economic platform, now dubbed as Bidenomics. Bidenomics is working. The economy that grows the economy from the middle out the bottom up instead of just the top down. When that happens, everybody does well. And President Biden says that under Bidenomics, the rich will have to pay their fair share in taxes, while the middle class will prosper with new opportunities and new investments. We're doing this, doing all this, reducing the deficit at the same time. But an economist told me... When we increase the regulatory budget and when we increase taxes, when we adopted policies that are very similar to Bidenomics, and in those 52 years, we had zero increase in our living standards. But while President Biden says... It takes time to get it out in the field. It takes time for them to see it. Maybe this is the one time that things will work. That's what they say about socialism. Meanwhile, congressional Republicans are also reacting to the new branding by the White House. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy today called Bidenomics an economic disaster with decades-high inflation. But despite low approval rating of his handling of the economy, President Biden insisted today that he has a plan that's turning things around quickly. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. Former President Trump has filed a counterclaim lawsuit against the author who said he raped her in a dressing room in the 1990s. A jury found that Trump did not rape Eugene Carroll, something the former president himself repeatedly denied. Trump's counterclaim comes just a month after he was ordered to pay $5 million in damages to Carroll. That's after a jury found him liable for battery and defamation. Trump's counterclaim states that Carol damaged his reputation by accusing him of rape during her appearance on CNN.
one day after a jury found that Carol did not prove that Trump raped her. Trump also stressed that he did not know Carol and took aim at the fact she was unsure when the alleged incident took place. It was for her second lawsuit the jury awarded Carol $5 million in damages, including $2 million for sexual abuse and around $3 million for defamation. Getting creative. Imagine that the federal income tax is completely wiped out and replaced by a sales tax on everything you buy. That idea and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis' support for it has attracted negative ads from the Trump campaign. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the story. Former President Trump is pulling back support on a tax idea that he once expressed openness to. That is the national sales tax, also known as the fair tax. It would impose a 23% sales tax on every item and service that we buy. What kind of impacts will this have on Americans overall? Having a national sales tax will mean that every good and every service will be more expensive. And the problem is that the IRS does need reforming, but this is not how you reform the tax code. Companies won't have to pay taxes anymore, so corporations will be exempt from taxes, and the full tax burden will be on consumers. The national sales tax is an idea that Governor Ron DeSantis has long supported Trump, now making it a target in his primary campaign ads, like this one. Huge tax cuts for nearly everyone. And Ron DeSantis, he's pushing a bill that would swap those tax cuts for a new 23% national sales tax, making families pay more. Now, DeSantis's campaign team has criticized the ad, saying that they lack context because the idea, as Governor Ron DeSantis supported it when he served in Congress, also replaces the federal income tax and it eliminates the IRS. DeSantis also points to Trump's previous openness to the idea as expressed here. What your tax plan would look like. So you could have fair tax, you can have flat tax, and you could have take the existing plans that we have and simplify. That second idea mentioned by Trump, the flat tax, is not based on consumption. Instead, it would simplify the tax code and require every taxpayer to pay the same percentage on income tax. But despite Trump's criticism of the fair tax, some in Congress who are strong conservatives are still supporting it. Lawmakers such as Kat Kamek, Ralph Norman, Buddy Carter, and others have endorsed the bill. I think that they look at this as tax reform. The good intentions are there, but they haven't thought this through and what this is going to mean for the economy. The question now is, will these conservatives make it a priority to try to force a vote on this fair tax bill? If just a small portion of the conservatives in the House are strongly pushing for this, it is something that we could see them force Speaker McCarthy's hand on, just based on what we've seen happen in Congress over the past few months. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Now to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. As an insurrection comes to a close in Moscow, the U.S. is shedding some light on the incident. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, a Russian missile has struck a restaurant, leaving at least 11 people dead. NTD's Sam Wong brings us the latest update. President Biden on Wednesday said that the Wagner mutiny has left a dent in Putin's image. He's losing the war at home, and he has uh, become a bit of a fly around the world. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken described the incident as a moving picture, saying that there's more to come. Well, first, this is, this is a moving picture, and I don't think we've seen the last act. I don't want to predict where this is going to go, when it's going to get there. I do know that, that Putin has a lot of new questions that he has to answer for. 
Blinken added that Russia's aggression against Ukraine has been a failure across the board for Putin. The statements came just days after the Russian paramilitary group launched a revolt against the Kremlin's defense ministry. But the mutiny came to an abrupt stop after Wagner's leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, reached an agreement with Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko. The deal allows Prigozhin to pull back his forces and go into exile in Belarus without facing prosecution. Lukashenko said he convinced Putin not to, quote, wipe out Prigozhin. The Russian president initially vowed to crush the mutiny, but later compromised with the exile decision. As a close ally to Putin, Lukashenko said he asked the Russian president to think ahead, suggesting that killing Prigozhin could lead to a revolt by Wagner fighters. Over in Ukraine, President Vladimir Zelensky delivered a speech on Wednesday, describing Russia's military leaders as bandits and ruling out any peace plan that would turn the war on Ukraine into a frozen conflict. But just one day ahead of his speech, a Russian missile struck a crowded pizza restaurant in the city of Kremotorsk, killing at least 11 people, including three children. Completely unexpected. No sign, no sound. At one moment, immediately came a very, 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 very hard boom. The man speaking is Frankie Van Hintem, a Dutch fast food baker. He was sitting at a restaurant just as the attack happened. In the aftermath of the incident, Van Hintem began to film his surroundings as people roamed the city's debris-covered streets. Ukrainian authorities arrested a suspect on Wednesday, accusing him of conspiring with Russia to direct the missile strike. Kramatorsk is a frontline city that houses the Ukrainian army's regional headquarters, and that pizza restaurant was frequently visited by local residents, journalists, aid workers, and soldiers. Sam Wang, NTD News. Up next, a new report about the information government agencies had ahead of January 6th. Were they aware of the potential for violence? We'll show you the findings. And the implications of a recent House report on government-directed surveillance, censorship and efforts to conceal them. We'll have expert analysis and more when we come back. Welcome back. Government agencies allegedly knew about possible violence in D.C. ahead of January 6th. That's according to a new Senate report, which says law enforcement wasn't adequately warned. Democratic Senator Gary Peters of Michigan is the chairman of the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. On Tuesday, the committee published this report. It alleges that the FBI and Homeland Security failed to warn law enforcement of expected violence in Washington, D.C. ahead of January 6, 2021. Peters said in an accompanying statement that, despite the high volume of tips and online traffic about the potential for violence, these agencies failed to sound the alarm. The report says that the agencies received reports about people planning to commit homicide, storm the Capitol building, and more. However, they allegedly continued to downplay the overall threat. The report cited internal emails in which agents indicated the Bureau identified no credible or verified threat. Republican Senator John Kennedy commented on the new report. He told Fox News that Republicans didn't get the chance yet to really examine what happened before, during, and after January 6. I think what we need is an objective look, mm -hmm. if necessary, by some nonpartisan outside experts. American people would like to know. NTD reached out to the Department of Justice for comment on the new report, but didn't immediately hear back. A government agency colluded with tech companies and other third parties to surveil and censor Americans and then covered it up. 
The House Subcommittee on Weaponization outed the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, this week to discuss the implications of these revelations and how they could impact the 2024 election. We spoke with Benjamin Weingarten, editor-at-large at Real Clear Investigations and senior contributor at The Federalist for his analysis. Ben Weingarten, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So to begin, you've been covering this for over a year. What was the most surprising aspect that you uncovered? Well, that the Weaponization Committee has taken on this investigatory effort is pivotal because CISA has been described accurately as the nerve center of federal government-led censorship efforts as the linchpin in, within the government of a mass public-private censorship regime that's been imposed on us. And this report does a great job of both detailing that story, how authorities went from targeting foreign adversaries to domestic wrong thinkers and their tweets or Facebook posts as essentially mini digital terrorist attacks, and then how they ultimately sought to cover it up. And I think what maybe is most surprising about it is how conscious they were, well, first of all, how unconscious they were of how First Amendment violating potentially their activities were, and then how active they were in seeking to try and cover it up with some amazing quotes of those who participated in uh, this speech policing directly and by proxy, essentially saying, Americans are going to get smart to this. We better have an exit strategy here. It seems the ex-Twitter chief censor also wrote that it is difficult to determine whether a foreign adversary is involved when it comes to speech that she disapproves of. How does that play into countering, say, propaganda efforts from adversarial countries? Well, I think what we see in this report, and you know, as I detailed in testimony before the House Homeland Security Committee as well, is that it's very Orwellian and reflects mission creep within DHS, that originally DHS's focus was on targeting foreign terrorists, and now, via CISA, it went from targeting purported foreign actors engaging in influence operations to very quickly, post-2016 election, then targeting domestic speech. And you had these individuals, including big tech officers like Vijaya Gade, who was kind of the chief censorer at Twitter before she was let go, who are talking about the fact that, well, you know, it's really hard to distinguish between foreign versus domestic. Well, first of all, who is this cybersecurity MDM subcommittee to be opining on this? When did the American people authorize federal authorities to target domestic speech? Should they be in the position of determining whether speech is foreign or domestic that apes foreign actors, et cetera. None of this conversation has ever been brought forth and put in front of the American people, let alone litigated. So while, of course, there are foreign actors who seek to use our freedoms, including platforms created by Americans, to ultimately undermine and subvert us, by the same token, there has to be a real conversation and clear-cut laws and authorities put in place to the extent the government is going to go about policing speech and then determining whether the speech is American speech or foreigners' speech. And on that point, it seems this team knew that their efforts would be viewed negatively because their emails show that they're saying, quote, only a matter of time before someone realizes we exist and starts asking about our work. What do we know about the private companies that were part of this? 
Well, we have investigators, including the weaponization subcommittee right now, who have issued document requests and in some cases even subpoenas to look at communications between these private actors, putatively academic or research organizations that bill themselves as anti-disinformation outfits, namely including the Election Integrity Partnership, which then morphed into the Virality Project. These were consortia of these NGOs who themselves did what CISA officers quickly realized they probably couldn't do, which was to surveil American speech on social media en masse, look at offending narratives or content, and actually get the platforms to change their terms of service to censor that content, but also collect instances of offending content and ship it off to those platforms to say, look, these are violations of your terms of service, and you should censor. They did so en masse. They did so in many ways in coordination with CISA. They consulted with CISA at the outset. And by the way, there was substantial public funding for many of these outside groups. Many of these outside groups are also staffed by ex-government officials as well. So it's an incredibly incestuous relationship. And really quickly, how does this play into the 2024 election season as we head into that? Well, I think Americans should expect, until we learn otherwise, that social media platforms are probably going to engage in de facto massive election interference to the extent the standards that prevailed in 2020 and 2022 continue, whether or not it's going to be government-directed, whether or not government agencies are going to do so surreptitiously, or even through these third-party cutouts is yet to be seen. But this is a majorly important live issue precisely because we've seen this interference in our republic before, and it's poised to happen again in 2024 to the extent this regime isn't scrutinized and ultimately brought down. Ben Weingarten, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. A hefty new fee is coming to New York City drivers. The city plans to charge a daily toll on vehicles entering or remaining in the central business district. And the plan just got the go-ahead from the U.S. Department of Transportation. Drivers through Lower Manhattan face a new traffic congestion charge next year of $23 a day, making New York the first major U.S. city to implement such a program. And how do New Yorkers feel about it? That's crazy. This driver says the cost is extortionate. I can't really afford that because I drive to work five days a week and it's ridiculous. And how much do I make a week for me to be paying $23? I have to pay for the garage and then pay $23 in addition. A taxi driver said more tolls would pass the cost on to his passengers. For every passenger that I pick is paying congestion charges already. So I don't know why I have to pay and then pick up the money for them. So I'm not going to do that. And this food vendor says it would eat into his profits. Every day, if we make $200, we have to spend $150 for your supply and cost and everything. So if it's $23, so it's not good for no one. It's not good for no one for the city. If we do, the, do this one, so nobody want to do the business in the city. Despite the naysaying, the plan is going ahead. Federal authorities gave it the green light on Monday, passing the government's environmental review process. The congestion fees kick in next year and charge drivers variable rates once they enter New York's Central Business District, which is defined as streets between 60th and Midtown Manhattan to Battery Park on the island's southern tip. This day was coming for a long time, but it was a thoughtful, methodical process. 
New York Governor Kathy Hochul quoted a 2022 study at a press conference that estimates the congestion charges could cut 15 to 20 percent of traffic in Manhattan. The plan to introduce congestion charges was approved in 2019. New York lawmakers hoped it could provide funding to improve the city's mass transit network. Staying in New York, a new report says that the city is now sheltering more illegal immigrants than homeless people. To shed light on this, NTD's Jack Bradley spoke with Michelle Steeb, senior fellow at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Steve oversees the foundation's initiative to transform national and state homelessness policy. Michelle Steeb, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me back, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. New York City is now housing more unsheltered illegal immigrants than homeless people. So what, what is your take on this? Well, my, my take is, is that policy, um, you know, and, and obviously New York is a sanctuary uh, city, but it also is a city that has a right to shelter, which is a very... Uh, you know, unique set of circumstances that they have to deal with. It's their, you know, it's city policy, so the city can actually change policy. But, but the combination of these two things is very, very uh, detrimental to the city in the long term. In terms of right to shelter, uh, what that says is uh, anyone who uh, is in New York City, whether they be homeless, whether they be an illegal. Um, migrant has a right to uh, be sheltered, and uh, the 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 and and I'm not here to discuss whether or not uh, that specifically is the right policy. But what people need to understand is that means that that policy does not have any guardrail of personal responsibility or accountability. So New York is on the hook for taking care of those people for life because there's not any uh, part of that policy which says that they need to start taking, you know, more responsibility for their lives. They can be taken care of for the rest of their life, uh, lives according to uh, policy. So it's a very, very deadly, com uh, you know, combination, uh, the right to shelter and the sanctuary city that is going to uh, have very negative uh, impacts in the short term and in particular, the long term. We've seen the homeless population increase across the country, um, especially in major cities. Um, what explains the, the rise in homelessness? And as, as far as illegal, immigrant, illegal immigration goes, is this a new issue that we're seeing? Well, let me um, get to the policy, and then I want a little bit of clarification on your second question. So back in 2013, it, it, before 2013, uh, federal policy, and the federal government is the largest funder of, of homelessness, and they distribute most of their money through the local level. So the policy up until 2013 was uh, you need to house, you know, people, and there's lots of different types of housing, shelters and transitional and permanent housing. You need to house people and you need to treat their their the illnesses or the, the reasons that led them to homelessness. Um, and, and the federal government funded both of those things. And then in 2013, based on, you know, a whim, uh, they took a policy uh, called Housing First, which was really developed for a, about a 10 to 20 percent um, 
segment of the homeless population, and they decided to roll it out as a one-size-fits-all solution. And so basically what they, what they did was they said, we're only going to fund housing vouchers now. We are not going to fund mental health counseling, drug and alcohol counseling, employment training, you know, we're not going to do any of that. We're just going to fund housing vouchers. So we're going to do one thing for everyone who is homeless. And that that notion in and of itself is crazy. It's like saying the federal government's only going to approve one drug for cancer. I mean, that, you know, there's so many different types of cancer and different people with different chemistries. You need to, um, you know, uh, fund more than a one-size-fits-all, and and especially if you expect anything to change. Well, with that, Michelle, Steve, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Coming up, the French government is heightening police presence around Paris. More violence is expected over the death of a 17-year-old who was shot and killed during a police check. And the vast majority of Americans believe human trafficking is a major problem and that we're not doing enough to stop it. NTD speaks with two professionals who are deeply involved with this issue. These stories and more after the break. Welcome back. French President Macron said nothing justifies a young person's death after protests and riots over the killing of a teen gripped the Paris region. A 17-year-old was shot by police after he refused to stop at a traffic control. The government has called for calm and tightened security as more clashes are expected tonight. NDD France correspondent David Vives has more. Last night, clashes broke out between police and youth in the Paris suburb of Nanterre. Clashes also erupted in at least 10 other suburbs. Video posted on social media show people setting off fireworks near the police station and torching cars. One city hall was also set ablaze. On Wednesday morning, the government spokesperson called for calm. We of course share our strong emotion because a young man of 17 years has died in brutal conditions. An emotion that we share with his family, friends, neighbors, and of course, the entire nation, since this is a young 17-year-old. He said that at this stage, there is a police officer in custody and he's being investigated over voluntary homicide. Footage of the incident has been released. It shows two police officers leaning into the driver's side window of a yellow car before the vehicle pulls away as one officer fires into the window. Prosecutors on Tuesday said the shooting took place after the youth failed to comply with an order to stop. Residents of Nanterre this morning said they saddened by the incident. I think that starting a riot like what happened yesterday will not change things. We don't solve things by rioting. We should debate, talk and find common ground with the government regarding what's happening with the youth. Maybe find them jobs. I can't understand it. Refusing a traffic stop. I mean, if you are stopped by police, just stop. It's always hard to lose a child, but I don't understand. President Emmanuel Macron called for justice to be done and said nothing justifies a young person's death. More tensions and riots are expected tonight as the anger has not gone away. The Minister of Interior said 2,000 police officers will be deployed in the Paris region, which is 800 more than last night. 
David Vives, NTD News, Paris. July 1st marks 26 years since Britain returned Hong Kong to China with a promise of a high degree of autonomy for the city. But freedoms in Hong Kong have been increasingly eroded. NTD spoke to Benedict Rogers, chief executive of Hong Kong Watch, earlier, and here's what he said. Well, essentially today, Hong Kong has uh, moved very rapidly in the last few years from being one of uh, the most open, freest cities in Asia to becoming one of its most repressive police states. And all of those freedoms that were promised, uh, as you've mentioned, in the Sino-British Joint Declaration uh, and were meant to be protected for at least 50 years from the time of the handover, so until 2047, have all been dismantled. Uh, There is today in Hong Kong no press freedom, no freedom of assembly, freedom of association. Uh, Almost all the um, independent media have been forced to close down. Uh, Pro-democracy politicians are either in prison or in exile or keeping their heads down. Um, More than 60 civil society organizations have been shut down. So really, Hong Kong's uh, freedoms have been entirely Uh, torn up. The international community should uh, continue to keep a spotlight on Hong Kong and should not forget Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong received, rightly, a a lot of attention uh, during the protests in 2019 and then around 2020, but that attention has uh, uh, reduced, um, perhaps inevitably because the media moves on and there are other crises in in the world. Um, But it's important that uh, we we don't uh, lose focus. So I I think the international community must continue to pay attention, uh, uh, speak out for those who are on trial or in prison. Uh, For example, uh, Jimmy Lai, uh, who's been in prison for several years now, uh, his trial under the national security law later this year will begin. uh, And he faces the very real likelihood that he could spend the rest of his life in jail. And he actually is a British citizen. So the British government has a responsibility to speak up for Jimmy Lai and and for others uh, like him. Hong Kong had been a British colony since the 1840s. The British handed the territory over to Communist China in 1997 under an agreement known as One Country, Two Systems. Under the agreement, the Chinese regime promised to have Hong Kong retain high levels of political and economic autonomy for 50 years, with freedoms of assembly, speech and press, which are not allowed in Communist China. The agreement did not specify how Hong Kong would be run 50 years after the handover. 80% of American voters believe human trafficking is a major problem and we're not doing enough to fix it. That's according to a new poll. Just how bad is the situation and what can you do to help? NTD's Faye Quarter brings us the story. The vast majority of American voters say the human trafficking crisis is a major problem and that not enough is being done to fight it. Human trafficking refers to trading human beings, often using them for forced labor and sexual exploitation. That may look like a young girl from Guatemala is told that she's being offered a job opportunity to come to the United States with a visa, maybe to work as a nanny or to work in a restaurant or to work for a company. But upon arrival, she realizes that um, she's actually going to be forced into prostitution. That's the prototypical scenario. Kate Lincoln Goldfinch is an immigration lawyer who helps trafficked victims. 
She says the victims lose their liberty. They may have their passports taken away from them, and they may be forced to work long hours. They think that if they run away, they will be captured and harmed, or their families being threatened. A lot of people um, know that their uh, captors know exactly where their children are. The State Department estimates between 15,000 and 50,000 women and girls are trafficked every year. Worldwide, human trafficking is the fastest growing crime. Some of the reasons include high profits, high demand, and low risk. The COVID pandemic made it grow even more. In some countries, they saw a 5,000% increase in, in um, reported crimes. Um, and in the United States, you know, trafficking looks different than what it looks like overseas. Uh, overseas, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very dark, right? You see kids in cages. In the United States, you, you see it as prostitution. Austin Shamlin is the CEO of the Traverse Project, which identifies, maps, and disrupts trafficking networks internationally. He says trafficking is hard to fight because the laws are unclear. For the United States law enforcement to prosecute a case, they have to find a nexus back to the United States. Um, you know, and a lot of what I refer to as producer countries, a country that would produce a victim of, of trafficking, um, you know, their laws haven't caught up. Um, and it's just kind of a way of life in, in some of these countries. If you're a trafficking victim, survivor, or witness, or you think you have a tip regarding human trafficking, you can call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 188-373-7888. This is a 24-7 hotline funded by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hotline staff can immediately help survivors with their situation. Bay Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, the NHL recently scaled back its Pride Night activities, but now has a new idea to promote inclusivity and equality. And nearly two dozen dogs have been rescued from China's meat trade. They have arrived safely in Southern California and are now looking for loving homes. We'll have the details for you after the break. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update on the NHL's Pride Night plans. That's right, Tiff. Just days after the NHL announced no more Pride warm-up jerseys will be worn by the players on the ice, the league, along with the Players Association, announced they formed an inclusion coalition consisting of 20 members. NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman said the goal of the coalition was to, quote, provide the NHL with insights regarding equality and inclusivity that only the players can give us. Former Olympic hockey star Megan Dugan, who is openly gay, is one of the members of the coalition. Dugan says educating a league on minority and women's representation in the front offices is an important first step. Now this is a league where more than 90% of the players are white and nearly 85% of the workforce is male, according to a study done last year. Dugan also shared that she was disappointed that the league was dropping their pride jerseys for players, but says they'll have an even bigger event coming up. Now, the league ditched those jerseys because they had been a quote, distraction, according to Commissioner Bettman, as a number of players refused to wear them, with some citing their religious beliefs. And in women's gymnastic news, seven-time Olympic medalist Simone Biles has returned to competition for the first time in two years at the U.S. Classic, which takes place just outside of Chicago on August 5th. 
Biles last competed in the Tokyo Olympics two summers ago, famously removing herself from several events to focus on her mental health. The 2016 world champion sat out the all-around floor and vault finals, which she had qualified for after a reported case of the twisties, which is a term for when gymnasts lose their spatial awareness when airborne. The 26-year-old is ultimately hoping to make her third Olympics team in 2024, something only one other female gymnast has done. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, 13 baseball games are on, including the Tampa Bay Rays, who still have the AL's best record. They play at the NL West leading Arizona Diamondbacks. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, over to you. In California, one local nonprofit is doing all it can to help rescue dogs from around the world. With their unconditional loyalty and compassion, these dogs are being offered an extraordinary opportunity. NTD's Christina Corona has more from Los Angeles. On Tuesday, nearly two dozen dogs were rescued from China's meat trade and they have safely arrived here in Southern California. Ruse Kennel in Inglewood is their first destination before heading to their forever homes scattered across different locations in the United States. We spoke with Jill Stewart, the president and founder of China Rescue Dogs and Roos Kennel, who says their goal is to rescue and rehabilitate dogs taken from China's meat trade. We just had 20 dogs arrive from China last night, late last night. As we all sadly know that Yulin Dog Meat Festival is happening as we speak. These dogs, in collaboration with SPC International and WeatherTech, we decided to bring these dogs and save 20 or 30 more dogs during Yulin. In the most recent Freedom Flight, a group of 16 Golden Retrievers, two Corgis, a Poodle and a Malamute were transported to safety. And so we work with partnering shelters, we work with partnering rescues and they help us collaborate. We have four shelters in China and the dogs get meet all the requirements, quarantine, vaccinations, everything that they need to be compliant to come into our country. The consumption of dog meat is common in many countries, but not everyone in those countries support the practice. In China, most people don't realize it's the number one country in the world for brutality. There are no rights for animals. You can brutalize an animal on the street. You can skin it alive. The police have quotas. Many animals of this size cannot even be on the ground. They cannot go outside. They don't meet that. When Jill started her nonprofit organization in 2019 with the mission of rescuing dogs, her goal was to help save dogs all throughout China. One lucky adopter got to meet her new furry friend on Tuesday. We spoke with Sue Grunfest, the founder of Love Dog Adventures Animal Assisted Therapy Program, who drove from Las Vegas to pick up the latest addition to her family. So we're happy he made the long trip. I was very worried. Such a small dog to travel so many flights and, and so little. And I've been in touch with his, his contact in China all along the way. We have to send her pictures soon. She was very concerned for him and took very good care of him. We are so pleased with the care. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.